Hello and welcome to another episode of the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. There are many great authors who integrate folklore, or at the very least the folkloresque, into their work. If you don't know, the term folkloresque applies to those things that seem like a genuine piece of folklore, but are entirely fictional using very similar tropes and motifs to actual examples to give them an added sense of credence. You can probably think of some big-name examples. Tolkien, Terry Pratchett, Neil Gaiman. They're all probably high up on the list. We've featured many and will continue to feature many more writers on the podcast who do the same thing. But for those interested in unpicking literature folklore, either just for the interest, or because you write yourself and always welcome new tips and tricks, then today's guest will be just for you. In any case, this interview is an absolutely fascinating listen. Kelly McCath Moran is an author, musician and student in the University of Newfoundland's Department of Folklore, where she's in the process of completing her final dissertation as we go to air. She has for a long time hosted a newsletter called Folklore and Fiction, recently also turned into a podcast. In this, Kelly unpacks principles of folkloristic scholarship like genre, traditional tale plots and traditional motifs, and then explains them, offers examples of them, and shows storytellers how to use them in their own work. Kelly's been writing professionally since 2004 and has been shortlisted and nominated for awards for both her fiction and poetry collections. There is much to learn from Kelly's experience, as you'll see in the course of this interview, which was led for me by Tracy Nicholas as part of her series on storytellers. I am Tracy Nicholas with the Folklore Podcast, and I'm here today with Kelly McCath Morin. And Kelly is a PhD candidate in the Folklore Department at Memorial University of Newfoundland, an author, a poet, and a musician. She's the creator of the long-running podcast Folklore and Fiction, which explores creative applications of folklore for writers and storytellers. She's a member of the American Folklore Society, the International Society for Folk Narrative Research, and the Canadian Authors Association, amongst others. Her music is inspired by the English and Scottish ballad traditions and rooted in contemporary paganism. Kelly, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Tracy. Uh, so to start things off, I know I just talked a little bit about you, but can you tell us about yourself and your background and your path that got you to where you are today? Absolutely. So um, I finished a Bachelor of Celtic Studies a long time ago at University of Toronto in 2001. And during that time, I studied the languages, the literatures and the histories of the Irish and Scottish Gaels and the Welsh. And I've forgotten most of the Gaelic that I had, but I still have a little bit of it, you know, um, comes out in strange places. Every now and then I'll say Dion, you know, in Welsh or whatever, um, or um, Jayella, what else in Scottish Gaelic, whatever. Anyway, um, so uh, then I went on to school at the University of Maine and I finished a Master of English Literature with a Creative Writing Concentration in 2003. And I started teaching English and writing there. And then thereafter, I started teaching creative writing off and on as an adjunct. Um, I'm currently like there was a big space of time where I wasn't in school. And I'm currently working on my doctorate, as you mentioned, at Memorial University of Newfoundland. 
And while my dissertation looks at the ethical beliefs of vegans and their performances in animal rights activism, the stuff I've been doing outside the university has been more focused on the education of writers and storytellers. And I've also been focused on my own art. And okay. speaking of that, um, I started writing professionally in 2004. Um, I've placed about a little over 50 academic articles and conference presentations and poems and short stories since then. Um, I've been nominated or shortlisted six times for various literary awards, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I've been teaching and, and writing. Um, I, I, I was a teaching and writing guest at three science fiction and fantasy conventions in the last decade or so. Um, most recently, and this is really cool, I was commissioned by the Odyssey Theater in Ottawa to write a fantastical radio play for the Other Path podcast series, and that's available for folks to listen to now at theotherpath.ca, and I've been producing the monthly dispatch and podcast that you mentioned, and finally, my musicianship, which is, I think, the dearest to my heart, the closest thing uh, to my heart. I've done all this other stuff, you know, with my writing and my academics, but my musicianship took this long winding road and I released my first EP um, on uh, Beltane of last year. It's called Shatter and Rise. And it has um, two songs I wrote over 20 years ago and an adaptation of Child Ballad Number no. 10, The Trois Sisters. And I think that covers it all. Um, I live on an island in the North Atlantic. Um, I live on Cape Breton Island in Nova Scotia with my husband and two black cats, which I call the Dark Brotherhood. Well, great. Thank you for that. Um, so can we start with your podcast, with Folklore and Fiction? Um, and I know that it is geared toward teaching writers about folklore, myth, legends, um, and, and storytellers, other artists. Can you tell us about how you, how you first conceived it and where you've gone with it? Absolutely. Um, I started back in 2016 for my PhD, and we went to field school first. So I was in the field and I was practicing ethnography with my cohort for three weeks. And then I had a class on genre that fall. And the minute I started reading academically about myths and legends and wonder tales and how they're constructed and sort of the narrative structures behind them, I thought, I've been teaching this sort of thing already. This is so cool. So um, I started thinking about, okay, what could I do with the structure of myth for a writer? What could I do with the structure of legend for a writer? And I started taking some notes. Um, and then in 2018, I, I had been going to this annual convention called When Words Collide in Calgary. And it was, it's a great opportunity. 700 writers get together and teach each other things for three days. It's awesome. And so I went and I had a conversation with some women I really respect. And one of them is Angela Ackerman, who is half of the inspiration behind the emotion thesaurus and the rural setting thesaurus and the urban setting thesaurus and that whole series, which are amazing. If you're a writer, get the hints and go get them. Uh, and that's a free plug for Angela. Um, and Becca Pugilisi is the other person who's involved in that. But anyway, I talked to Angela about this and I said, listen, I want to do something that does what you do only for for folklore, I wanted to give people a guide so that they could understand what myths were made of, what legends were made of, what wonder tales were made of. So um, I talked to her about it and a couple of people were really enthusiastic and a couple of writers said, man, we'd really love it if you'd write a book about this when you're done. So I took some more notes 
And in January 2019, I launched the, the monthly dispatch. And the neat thing about it was I looked all over because I'm a scholar, you know, and I wanted to see if there was anything else out there like what I wanted to do because I'm a, a, you know, a writer of the fantastic. I'm a science fiction and fantasy writer. So I wanted to know, is there anything else out there that talks about what a myth is and then says, okay, science fiction writer, do this with it you know? And I couldn't find anything. And so I was really excited about this because I thought, oh my goodness, maybe I'm the first person who's ever sort of thought about folkloristics and fantastical storytelling in quite this way. So for two years, um, folklore and fiction was just a dispatch. And then in January of 2021, right in the middle of the pandemic, it mm -hmm. became a podcast, a monthly podcast. And I've podcasted two years and then I've gone back and I've repodcasted the first year of archives. And I'm going to then now I'm working on the second year of archives. Um, so that's that's sort of the background on folklore and fiction. Um, I did two years of what's called genre and we can get into that in a minute and I can talk about how that's all, all, all broken down. And then I did a year of the ATU tale types and I'll talk about those in a minute. Mm -hmm. And I did another year of motifs from various places from the child, the, the uh, motif corpus of the child ballads, I think it's called. And then the motif index of folk literature, of course, and, and those sorts of things. So that's, that's sort of the background for folklore and fiction. So when you say that it was initially a dispatch, was that a, a monthly newsletter, a weekly newsletter? It, it, it's something you were emailing out to people? Yes, yes. And I still have that subscriber list and I still send out monthly emails. Um, um, anybody who wants to look at you know, the, the previous editions, they're all on my website and we'll talk about how to get to that later. But um, yeah, so I started with this, I guess, a blog entry that then went out to subscribers. And so it was just sort of this newsletter that you got in your inbox and it talked about what a myth is, what a legend is, what a wonder tale is, what a tall tale is. And the first half of the folklore and fiction dispatch was always very academic. Okay. So I talked about, okay, this is what scholars have to say. And this is a checklist of attributes and so forth. And then the middle was always, okay, now that we have this, I'm going to give you an example. Mm-hmm. From traditional narrative and then you can analyze it with me so i'd give people an example and sometimes it was from traditional narrative but then i got really inspired to start including things from like outlander and from terry pratchett and from you know other authors and saying okay you know like there's this great um section in monstrous regiment and terry pratchett where um where jackram is um gosh i can't even remember i'm, I'm going to make a fool of myself over terry pratchett here on the podcast but but anyway it's this really great scene and it it talks a lot about tall tales and it, it you know it, it shows you sort of what the tall tale is mm -hmm. and and terry pratchett does it very well and so i would take that out and i'd say okay this is terry pratchett doing this and this is patrick yeah. rothfuss doing this and okay now let's analyze it together and then the second half of folklore and fiction was always all right now i'm going to take off my folklore hat put on my writer hat and show you what to do with it uh -huh. and we talk about how to construct a tall tale or how to construct a myth but more importantly how to take the elements of myth and then turn them into a story of your own. Because my goal has never been to teach people to duplicate a myth or duplicate a legend, unless you wanted to include that form in something you were already writing. My goal has always been, okay, how can I give you these tools and have you go into your own writing or your own storytelling and include something that is mythic or legendary or evocative of a wonder tale? 
right? So yeah, that's how it was structured. And it went out every month, still going out every month. Um, yeah, okay, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so what inspired you to move it from the, uh, you know, dispatch format and say, you know, this will be a great thing to do as a podcast? What made you decide on that transition? Oh, I knew more people listened to podcasts than than read dispatches. And and to talk a little bit about, you know, like I'm going to throw in a little bit more about like the underpinnings of this too, because um, sometimes people absorb information a little better when they're listening to it than if they're reading it. Or sometimes people will read something and then want to have something to listen to a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was doing enough different things with the dispatches that I wanted for people to have like a a source, which was the dispatch on the website with the bibliography, but then something they could go on a run with or, you know, walk the dog with or whatever. Um, Anyway, yeah. And I would like to talk a little bit about sort of the, you know, the sort of nuts and bolts of folklore and fiction as well. Okay, let's do that then. Let's do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, because because I'm talking a lot about, you know, sort of, um, what folklore and fiction is and what it does in general. But I want to talk a little bit about what genre is and a little bit about what, you know, tale types and, and motifs are as well. Um, so that people understand sort of the nuts and bolts of, of the folklore side of things. Um, so again, what, I, what I've been doing is teaching people to identify what a myth is according to folklorists mm-hmm. or what a legend is according to folklorists and so forth. And um, also, the ATU tail types, which is the, the um, as researched by Auntie Arne Stith Thompson and most recently Hans Jorge Uther, in the types of international folk tales, a classification and bibliography, I knew that science fiction and fantasy writers were already using those indices okay. um, to write stories with. And I knew they were really hard to get hold of. And I wanted to be able to take out, let's say, a, a plot type, an ATU tail type poured it into folklore and fiction and say, this is the whole tale type. This is everything that's listed in the index. Now, can you take the scaffolding of that plot and turn it into something else? So for instance, can you take, you know, for instance, the the scaffolding of Jack and the Beanstalk and instead of talking about a boy who climbs a beanstalk and meets a giant, can we talk about, I don't know, a space elevator and a woman who has to climb a space elevator to meet, and I'm making this up as I go, um, the CEO of a megacorp. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, the CEO of the megacorp is hold, hoarding wealth. You know, So uh-huh. one of the things that I was trying to do with these tail types is say, you don't have to duplicate them. You can take out the bolts. You can take out the scaffolding and turn them into something completely different with the same structure. And I believe, and I would argue, that having that structure in place is enough to resonate with listeners and readers. Mm -hmm. You know, they may not always find it on the conscious level. They may not always find those connections. But somewhere in the back of your brain, you've heard something about somebody climbing a stalk of some kind and some sort of giant hoarding wealth, you know? Right. Um, so it may not always be a conscious resonance, but it's always a resonance. And then, of course, the motif index of folk literature. Um, you know, when we're talking about motifs, we're talking about little things like magic rings or singing trees or fee-fi-fo-fum, those little pieces or chunks of folk narrative that find their way into stories again and again and again. And I love those because those are a really great way to 
bring in a little bit of something, you know, and, and give it a grace note of folk narrative and, and whatever it is you happen to be writing or storytelling about. So I just kind of wanted to touch on that a little bit and, and dive a little bit more deeply into sort of the, the, the ways I, I pulled that apart for people because I don't want people to go away from folklore and fiction thinking they have to duplicate anything. I want sure. them to take this stuff and then tear it apart and use it in their own work the way they want to. Interesting. So um, when you're putting together, you know, you, you talked about you had different, the different seasons of, you know, whether it was the dispatch or the podcast, and you kind of focused on different areas. Can you go over those uh, again of, uh, you know, because you, you did, you've talked about the motifs, the genres, did you split it up that way? Or does each season kind of have a big mix of those different things? No, the first two seasons were specifically related to folk genre. Okay. And I, I looked at myth, legend, tall tale, fairy tale, uh, wonder tale, ballads. I talked a bit about performance theory. I talked about superstitions, charms, curses, rites of passage. Um, and each one of these was its own dispatch and, and podcast, uh, now podcast. And one of the things I would add to that too, is that what, folklorists think about these narrative elements and these genres is a little bit different from what storytellers need. Okay. Um, so that's, that's a really important distinction too. So for example, as a folklorist, I know that genres are slippery. And we talk about that a lot in folkloristics about how genres are slippery. For instance, if, if I see a ghost and I tell a story about that ghost, I am telling what's called a memorat which is a first person narrative with a supernatural component. If I tell it to you and then you tell that story, you're telling my memorat. But if you tell it to somebody else and they tell that story, it's now a legend. Oh. Okay. Uh -huh. um, so the genre, at what point does that memorat become a legend? Does it become a legend with you? And of course, when we're talking about legends, we're talking about engaging with the truth status of the narrative. You know, legends are things that might or might not be true. We're, we're forced to wonder, do we trust the person who told us the story? Um, do we trust the, the person's hairdresser who heard it from somebody else? You know, <laughs> that friend of a friend transmission. Sure. So, so that's something that's important for me to know as a folklorist. And it's important for me to tell you as a folklorist. But, you know, does a writer really need that nuance? Maybe not. Maybe what a writer needs is to know what a memorat is. Mm -hmm. and know how to break it down and put it back together again and create it. And the same holds true for legend. So what I try to do is, um, and, and, and for that reason, I've avoided teaching really heavy-handed analytical tools in okay. folklore and fiction. Like mm -hmm. Vladimir Propp's 31 Functions of the Folk Tale. I don't know if you've heard of that. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. So they're really good analytical tools and they were good in the 1920s. And I did study them briefly mm -hmm. in graduate school. But I, I think it's a mistake to become too reliant upon them in the same way that I think it's a mistake to become reliant upon Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. But Joseph Campbell is problematic for a whole host of other reasons we don't have to talk about here. They both seem like really great guides on the surface, mm -hmm. but Prop can only teach you how to duplicate a traditional tale. And Campbell can only teach you how to write a monomyth for Western men, mm -hmm. right? right? So if my, my big concern with folklore and fiction was to give storytellers a way to breathe into their work with folkloristics. Mm -hmm. 
and not to hand them a pattern and say, duplicate this pattern. Does that make sense? So, yeah. So the first, the first two seasons, the first two seasons were genre. And then I talked about plots and the ATU tail types. And then last year I did motifs, but always, always, it was never meant to be prescriptive. It mm-hmm. was always meant to be, take this, rip it apart, put it back together again, make it your own, you okay. know? Mm-hmm. So do you feel like some of the, the older stuff, um, Prop and uh, Campbell, were really talking more from an academic, here are all of the rules. And you've come in and said, okay, you know, here's a, a lot of the framework. And now what, what rules are you going to break? Or was it more of a, here's a framework and here, what are you going to create out of it? Is that kind of the difference that I'm hearing? Yeah. And I'm really big on the whole break the rules thing. I, I, you know, um, when I was talking about the Twa sisters in the Singing Bone episode that I did, um, I talked a lot about how, um, how, how, for instance, the Grimm brothers sanitized the folks, the folk tales they collected. They recombined them. They released the things that they wanted to release. They were very keen on the the nuclear family. So, you know, evil mothers ended up becoming evil stepmothers and that sort of thing. And you know, that's that's problematic from a folkloristics perspective. Um, and so when we start interrogating these tales, you know, I wanted for writers to understand that they were interrogating. Um, I wanted them to understand that if you, if the wicked stepmother suddenly becomes the righteous queen, you know, if, if your wicked stepmothers uh, become these strong, capable women in midlife, you know, why are you doing that? And, you know, understand that your, your pen has power, just like the Grimm's pens had power, your pen also has power. So when you're working with these narratives, interrogate your own reasons for doing so, interrogate the story, read many versions of the story. Mm-hmm. So it's not that I think that you should take the work and just, you know, burn, burn it all down or break down the doors, understand what you're working with. But yes, interrogate it, break some rules, um, take these traditional narratives and put them in science fiction, mm-hmm. um, put them in really radicalized science fiction that, you know, deals with aliens or sentient sons. I remember talking about sentient sons at one point in one of the folklore and fiction episodes. So, yeah, I, my goal has never been to tell people how to reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. You know, um, know that you're working with powerful narratives, know that you're working with traditional narratives, but but you are a powerful person too. Your writing is powerful. Um, the, the work of the, the writer and the storyteller is sacred work. Mm-hmm. Um, so know that you have that power as well and use your storytelling powers for good, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, when... I think that, you know, it, it was interesting when you were talking about when does, you know, that story become a legend and how does that go, you know, down that path of it's, you know, moving from one person to another. And early on, folklore was obviously an oral tradition. And I'm, I'm wondering about 
when you're talking about, you know, the Grimm brothers writing it down, things kind of got set in stone and, and it was like a little more, this is the way it should be. And it sounds like you're trying to break that up again and, and saying, no, it doesn't have to be according to, you know, the traditional stories that we all know, because at a certain point, it was just some guys writing it down and saying, we're going to capture it. And, you know, here's the way this story goes. But that's not really the way it was before that, is it? Well, and this is, you've actually sort of touched on one of my favorite topics in folkloristics, which is the oralization and literization, or literization, um, the, the writing down of a story. And and so when we, when we think about what we think of the text, um, we are a literate society. So we think of the text as a definitive, um, you know, a definitive uh, discussion of whatever the text is is about. So if we, we get a text on, I don't know, a cookbook, you know, we, 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 took, we look at the cookbook and we say, ah, these recipes are written down, they're tried and tested. Yep. But um, very often, you know, we talk to our grandmothers and they're like, ah, oh, just throw that in the pot, Lord. <laughs> you know, we're going to put that in the pot and we're going to put that in the pot and we're going to put that. So grandma, where's the recipe? You know, I need to, I need to know what recipe, you know? So yeah. one of the great things about, um, about my own education in folklore has been that I've learned to value oral culture as much as I value literate culture. And I don't see either of them as having greater validity than the other. When we think about oral culture and the passing of, of folk tales from one person to the next, um, preliterate, we have this, this tradition of adaptation. We have this tradition of memorization. The way people memorized, especially ballads, was completely different um, than, it, than it is, you know, for instance, um, if, if you were a woman learning a ballad in preliterate, let's say, Scotland, let's say you didn't know how to read, but mm -hmm. your grandmother taught you a song. And you knew as a ballad singer that people were going to want to hear this song. Mm -hmm. You would get the gist of it from your grandmother. You'd have a few stock phrases that you knew your friends and community members really enjoyed hearing, like her lily white hands or whatever. You'd have the air and then you'd kind of get up and sing it from memory. You'd compose on the fly. Mm -hmm. You know, you'd practice it. But you you had gone through this this in completely sort of internal process of crafting the story in your mind. Mm -hmm. And then if you wrote it down, your, your memorization as a literate woman learning the same ballad is completely different because you're learning it line by line by line. Sure. Right. Mm -hmm. You're not learning it in a, in a holistic way. You're learning it in a literate way, but neither of those ways of learning and neither of those ballads is better than the other. Mm-hmm. And so um, this process of moving from the oral to the literate is almost limiting because we have these wonderful versions of, of tales, many, many versions, many more than were written down. And then we got, you know, this sort of literate, this text in front of us. And are those better than the oral versions? Well, no, they're just what happened to be written down. And so now what, what happens now is this reoralization. So if, if you read a story, let's say you read a Grimm's fairy tale and you tell it to your daughter at bedtime mm -hmm. and your daughter grows up and says, oh gosh, my mom used to tell me this story and it went like this and it went like this and it went like this. I'm going to tell it to my son. Mm -hmm. So now you've taken an oral story that was written down and made literate and you've reoralized it. 
Uh-huh. Right. So this yeah. this is a this is a process of narrative that happens. And in my own place in that process as a teacher of writing and a folklorist is as you say to encourage writers and other storytellers to remember that that while their work is sacred and while these stories are old and powerful you can play with them kind of like a lion cub you know you you can play with these tales you can break them down you can add your own pieces and in that way you become a heritage keeper you become part of that lineage of storytellers and you know that's why i think it's important to know the variations of the stories that you're you're adapting to read widely on that but also to say no i have this power too mm-hmm. and to remember that nowhere along the line was any one of these stories qualitatively better than any other sure you know what i mean so you get to do that too right you get to you get to to participate in that as a writer and a storyteller as well yeah, that's, uh, that's a, a pretty big legacy to carry when you think about, you were talking earlier about keywords like lily white hands, you know, these key phrases, which in a lot of cases might have been very regional. And so as, you know, some storytellers, some, you know, ballad singers would move from area to area, they'd bring that with them, but some would stay local. And now that the way that we share stories as storytellers or as writers, it's much more global. And so to try and you know, make that shift of telling stories. I I absolutely can see where going back and reading many different versions is is really going to help inform how you then, you know, present that back to a much wider audience with many different and various backgrounds and experiences. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this is a great lead-in to talk a little bit. You had mentioned earlier that you worked on an audio drama for the Other Path series by the Odyssey Theater. And your piece is called The Belt and the Necklace. And can you talk about that, about the story that it's based on and how you adapted it both for the audio drama format and for modern audiences? Absolutely. So I'm, I'm going to geek out just a minute. And I geek out about folklore anyway. Um, but I'm going to geek out super hard about this. Um, so The Belt and the Necklace is taken from a book called The Tulip Princess and Other Newly Discovered Fairy Tales. And these fairy tales were collected by Franz Xaver von Schoenworth, who was an 18th century civil servant in Bavaria who went about his business as a civil servant. And while he was going about his business, he collected over 500 traditional tales. And he really didn't have sort of a mission the way the Grimm's did, right? He just wrote them down. Bless his civil servant heart. And we thank him for it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Thank you for your service. Thank you for your service, sir. Um, And so when he passed, his papers were deposited in of all places, a, at a municipal archive in Regensburg. And they were lost for over a hundred years and they wow. were found in the late 2000s. And so these stories, because he was such a faithful transcriber, they're more raw, they're okay. closer to the oral source, they're a little more queer, they're darker. 
And they, they have this, like I've read some of them aloud and, and they sound like someone is talking. So there's a great oral quality to many of these tales. And I was very excited about this. And I thought, well, you know, maybe nobody's ever adopted or rather adapted any of these tales. Let's see if any of them are suitable, right? So I, I reread them and I came across the belt and the necklace again. And it's super short. Like the, the tale itself is only about a page long. Okay. And, but it does some really interesting things. And, and one of the things it does is it talks about beauty. And it talks about what happens when um, people in the public eye are unbeautiful or ugly. Because the story begins with a princess who is ugly and who is mocked and has a terrible life. And I thought about that. And I thought, okay, it's 2021 and 2022. What is whose bodies are uh, scrutinized? Whose mm-hmm. bodies are the subject of mockery? And I thought about fatness. Okay. And I myself am a person of size, and I I thought, okay, so so fat body people are constantly scrutinized. What they eat is scrutinized. What they don't eat is scrutinized. What they wear is scrutinized. What they don't wear is scrutinized. You know, their their bodies are the topic of other people's conversations. So I thought, okay, how do I include? a fat bodied woman in a story about a prince and a princess. And I made her mother the matriarch of a very high end fashion house. Okay. So we have this matriarch of a fashion house with, um, with a large daughter and the story begins as the mother is sort of disinheriting her daughter so that she can put a model in her daughter's place. Wow. And um, I won't tell you the whole tale because I hope you'll go and listen to it because the, the production is just stellar and the cast is amazing and the sound quality is fantastic. But she has a family gnome and the family gnome says, well, I can help you with this. And the help is to make her classically beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so the story, the, the sort of underpinning of the story is about how we approach beauty what do we call beautiful what do we call unbeautiful whose bodies get to be beautiful um, and in what ways and whose bodies are scrutinized and in what ways Um, because you know barbara who is the the heroine of the tale she's scrutinized no matter what she looks like you know i will say that about the story her body is scrutinized whether she's you know classically beautiful or you know, beautiful and, and fat bodied at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one thing that was really important to me. But the other really cool thing about this tale, I'm going to go back into folkloristics for just a minute here. Um, one of the things about wonder tales, now wonder tales, fables are absolutely moral tales. We know this. Some of them even have the moral at the end called an epimethium, especially in the esophica. Um, but, um, but with fables, while the moral is present and it's a medicine and you take your medicine, right? You, right. you get right. your tale, you get your lesson. Often wonder tales had a moral sort of that wove its way throughout. It was kind of like a little medicinal wine in an otherwise lovely, you know, lovely experience. And we know that because the endings of fairy tales are not, we, we like to think of fairy tales as having happy endings. Mm-hmm. But fairy tales don't always have happy endings. They very often have moral endings. Mm-hmm. And so the person who, who has the proper lesson 
or learns the lesson of the tale is the person who succeeds. And then the person who has not learned the lesson of the tale or who has transgressed in the tale is the person who fails. Mm -hmm. And that piece is missing from the belt and the necklace as it's written. Um, it's, it's kind of absent. We don't have any morality at the center of it beyond this sort of ugly princess becomes a beautiful princess and, and so on and so forth. And so I wanted to bring something else to the tale. And that gave me an opportunity to do some really interesting adaptation work. And, um, because I'm very concerned about the climate crisis, um, and I've been including, um, you know, backdrops and settings that, uh, that focus on the climate crisis and some of my other stories. What I did was I included a moral in the tale that tied it to the climate crisis. And that was all me. It's not in the original. That's something I did, right? Yes. Um, so it was nice to have an opportunity to take this beautiful t- story that from, from a folkloristics perspective might be seen as a little bit incomplete and sort of add to it a little bit. It gave me space to move in. And that was really nice, you know? Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I had to adhere specifically to a plot beyond what was given me. I could I could kind of come in and include this bit or that bit that came from a you know sort of a modern perspective. And that was the that was the point of this series anyway. These were all fantastical tales told from a modern perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's why. I, I chose the belt and the necklace. And again, like the other path.ca, totally go listen to all of them. They're amazing. Um, and I, I can't say enough good about the actors and, and the sound quality of, of this production. It's really, really beautifully well done. Yeah. And I think that this is a very, um, the, you know, the, the story that you chose, the belt and the necklace is really interesting um, as an adaptation for modern life, because I, I've always thought that, you know, the beauty standards that we have are really centered around money and power, right? Um, you know, when it, if you were poor, you were out working in the fields or, or doing some sort of manual labor, it was you know, beautiful was to have very pale skin, you know, and when it was really hard to get decent food. Larger bodies were much more beautiful, you know, seen much as much more beautiful. And so to take this, this tale and it, it, to have it move so seamlessly into the world where we live, where talking about beauty is talking about, you know, the, the body shape and, and what is the morality around that. And I think that that is a, a really great part of the series of, of the other path series, how everyone in the, you know, each of the stories were able to make that leap into, you know, and, and it was, it was so easy and so seamless. And it, it reminded me that these tales really are, you know, eternal because they're about how people think and feel and not about a snapshot in time. Absolutely, man. And I love what you had to say there about the issue of money and power and beauty. Mm-hmm. I don't remember where I read this or saw this, and I'm sure it's been repeated again and again and again, but many of the people that young people hold up as icons of beauty make an incredible amount of money and are paid to be beautiful. Mm-hmm. They receive the best medical care. They receive the rest, the best um, beauty care. They they have facelifts, lifts. Pardon me. 
and tummy tucks and so forth, you know, and, and you can see a woman who is at 55 mm-hmm. and who has been a farmer mm-hmm. and a woman who is 55 and who has been a supermodel and th- their lives are evident on their bodies. Right. You know, right. I loved what you had to say about that. I think that was really important and, and really astute. Oh, thank you. Um, and, and I, I do want to ha- have you talk a little bit more about the original archive that you drew the belt and the necklace from, because you said something that I thought was very interesting, that the stories were a little more queer, they were a little more dark. And um, what what do you think about that A very long period of time in which these folk tales, fairy tales were very sanitized. And are we coming out of that now? Are, are we a little bit more able to hear these stories, you know, that uh, maybe were ableist at one point, or, you know, the, the, the racism and, you know, all of the things that had been sanitized out of these stories that, that gave us, well, us, my age, <laughs> an, you know, older uh, person who had all the Disney stories that that was my experience with fairy tales. And so is it, is it time? Are people more receptive to opening back up to some of these darker issues? You know, that's just a really interesting question because, you know, in, t- in thinking and talking about the Grimm's and also Charles Perrault, um, Jack Zipes talked about, and he's a very, very well-known uh, fairy tale scholar, talked about the idea that when these stories were pitched at children, moralities were included in the stories when they were written down that were not, and I forget how precisely he worded this, but it was really quite eloquent. Um, he talked about the idea that, that these moralities when they were pitched at children were not necessarily in the child's best interest. Oh. Right. Yeah. So, you know, the Grimm's were doing what Charles Perrault was doing, what I'm doing. The only difference is that our values have changed. Okay. You know, that's yes. what I think anyway. You yes. know, um, when when we talk in a bit about the Twa sisters, um, you know, I had a very feminist perspective on that ballad. And I made a decision that I wanted to change that traditional narrative to reflect a more modern sensibility. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's true that a lot of people who are adapting and subverting traditional narratives right now are doing it with contemporary audiences in mind. And because of that, we're seeing contemporary values okay. in the stories. They're coming into the stories, whereas, you know, the Grimm's had an agenda. Perot had an agenda. I have an agenda. You have an agenda. We all have agendas. Um, I think that that a hundred years from now, as our values evolve, you know, these stories will change again. And I wonder, you know, if that's the point. We have these wonderful traditional narratives that keep evolving and changing with us. Yes. And that's why I think it's really important again that while writers and storytellers understand their work is sacred. Um, and that there are elements of these traditional narratives that are sacred. They're not sacred in that way. They're not untouchable. Mm-hmm. You know, we yeah. don't have to look at them and say these are important relics of our human history and we cannot touch them. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to touch them. We're supposed to work with them. 
And it's another reason why, again, I would say that when we adapt and subvert these tales thoughtfully, we join a lineage of storytellers. Sure. You know, so for me, I'm very glad to see a more queer story. I'm very glad to see a darker story. I'm glad to see that these stories exist and show us that these agendas that the Grimm brothers or that Charles Perrault had are not um, a definitive representation of the people who told them. I'm right. glad to see that there that that our our oral traditions a little bit messier than that. That's fantastic. <laughs> right. But I also I also think that that um, that again it's important for us to sort of step into our place as storytellers and carry that forward. Does sure. that make sense? Does that answer Absolutely. your question? Absolutely. Okay. Cool. Cool. Um, and I think it is a great uh, lead-in to talk about the the Twa sisters and and what you've done with that. So, okay. So now I'm going to geek out again. Um, <laughs> um, so the Twa sisters is child ballad number 10. And you might have heard it um, as Gillian Welch and David Rawlings, The Wind and the Rain, or Lorena McKennett's The Bonnie Swans, or Old Blind Dogs, The Cruel Sister. Um, my exposure to ATU 780 began with The Bonnie Swans. And it is ATU 780, by the way. It's ATU 780 and Child Ballad number 10. Okay. Um, so, and years later, I found the cruel sister and then I found the wind and the rain. And I, I really got to be in my bonnet about this ballad because an older, darker, jealous sister drowns a younger, fairer, sweeter sister over a man who in some variants dated them both at the same time. And I thought, okay, who is this paragon of masculine virtue that one sister has to die? <laughs> <You know? laughs> Why would any two sisters permit a man to divide them? You know, my worldview is clearly different, right? right, right. I, I, am, I am a thoroughly modern woman about this, and, and I was mad about it. Um, and I understand, you know, the folklorist in me understands that marriage was a very important prospect for women historically, mm -hmm. that it was the way that they, they secured their futures. Right. Um, but I still had real problems with this. And in some versions, he dates the, the sweeter um, uh, of, the, of the two sisters with rings and pledges his love. And then he dates the darker sister with a knife. Right. Right. So he's, he, he comes after her and threatens her. And that's, you know, and you know, when I was looking at, um, I was looking at an archive and I can't remember which archive it was. It might've been the Roud archive. Um, and I was looking at the various different variations of this. I thought, well, that absolutely has to be included. I really have to give the sisters a reason to do what they did. And what they did was shove him off the cliff instead. <laughs> so I took a goodbye Earl approach <laughs> <laughs> to, the, to the story. Um, but anyway, um, so uh, there was a clash of worldviews, obviously, between mine and, and the worldview of the ballad. Um, I did pull from them, uh, pull from the variants that I read, sort of a rough outline of the story. Um, again, crucially, I borrowed from a variant in which the suitor threatens the dark sister's life. He courted the eldest with a penknife and vowed that he would take her life is the line. Um, and that provides good motivation for the sisters in my ballad to, to see Johnny as a threat to their safety. Absolutely. Um, and then I worked poetically to supplement the fragments I gathered with the story that I wanted to tell. And I set the finished result to a North American melody and refrain because I live on this continent and I loved the wind and the rain. And so um, it's, a, it's a variation on the wind and the rain. Um, 
And uh, I, this was a pandemic project for me. I rewrote it during the pandemic. I recorded okay. it during the pandemic. It was one of the folklore and fiction episodes. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I'm really quite pleased with it. But, you know, it's, it's like I said before, I have a particular perspective on this ballad. I'm a modern person. Sure. Um, my, my, my marital needs are not the marital needs of the women in the story historically. Yes. And I just wanted the sisters to stay together. Mm -hmm. Johnny was a creep. <laughs> I wanted Johnny. <laughs> I didn't want. And, and the, the, the song ends. Um, they, he, you know, instead of having a, a male, like if, if you're familiar with the, the, the ballad at all, um, once the, the dark sisters tossed off the cliff or the bright sisters tossed off the cliff, rather, um, a minstrel comes by and makes a harp from her breastbone and strings the harp with her hair. Well, instead, a female minstrel comes by and she sees Johnny dead on the beach and she makes a harp from his breastbone and uses his hair to string the harp. And um, she takes the harp. How do, how do I phrase this? To a shady bower where two sisters sang of love and power mm. and laid the harp upon a stone where it began to sing alone. Two sisters did I come to court and of their love I made cruel sport. Mm. They chose each other over me and by my death they are set free. Mm -hmm. So it's a different message altogether. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I'm talking about with subversion and adaptation of ballads and, and stories. That's the kind of thing I like to see other people do, too. Absolutely. And, and I think, interestingly, it's for, for me, at least, it's a conversation that has been changing over the past, I don't know, decade, couple of decades. Of women, I think, are saying, why, why are we so in competition with each other? Um, and, you know, why, why are we not supporting each other, lifting each other up? And, and I think it is important to say, you know, it's, it's not all about the men. And, and, and so uh, Cruel Johnny, right, is, mm -hmm. and, and, and we will get to listen to that, which is very exciting. And thank you for that. Absolutely. Um, thank you for playing it. <laughs> and it, it is it's, it's a very different look at you know where where the power lies should you choose it right mm -hmm. and and they did they, they chose they said we don't have to accept that and you know we're not waiting for a seat at your table we built our own table and, yes, and you're absolutely. not invited <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah. you harm you, you mess with my sister you mess with me <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right we're, we're ride or die <laughs> and you're the one dying johnny sorry <clears throat> um, yeah okay so what other what other thoughts do you have that i haven't asked you about we haven't touched on for your listeners for your readers um and and I know that the, the podcast gets takes a deep dive into um, a lot of areas that storytellers, you know, would be interested in. But coming up, could we talk a little bit about how that might be an easier, how you might be providing an easier way for people to access that information? Yes. Um, so right now I'm finishing my dissertation, which is um, the most important piece of writing that I can do right now. But immediately on the heels of that, I'm turning the, the last four years of the Folklore and Fiction podcast into a book called The Storyteller's Guide to Folklore. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm going to be distilling a lot of this information into a, a handbook for, for writers and other storytellers to use in much the same way as I learned to use and love those thesauruses I talked about at the top of, of the podcast. Yes. Um, I really want for this guide to be structured enough that you, you come away knowing that you've heard a folklorist on the topic, mm-hmm. but loose enough that you don't feel as though you have to write to a pattern. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, for instance, um, you know, I was talking about tall tales and structurally tall tales are among my favorite. Um, one of the things I do in the podcast is I, I give people a little checklist. You know, um, a tall tale is a fictional prose narrative told as if it were true and entertaining lie. Best understood in the context of an oral performance, but may also be written down. A male expressive tradition in which the storyteller often begins by asserting his own trustworthiness and so forth. So I want you to have that so you've got a guide. But I don't want for there to be 20 or 30 steps that you have to follow to recreate the thing. Mm-hmm. I want for you to be able to breathe. And so that's what I'm doing with the Storyteller's Guide to Folklore. I'm, I'm going to give you my folklorist. You know, I'm going to, I like to think of myself as a folklorist who translates into writer speak and a writer who translates into folklore speak. <laughs> and great. so, you know, I'm going to be giving you both halves of that in the book. And hopefully um, it will help people to create really unique pieces yes. that depart from what you might expect of traditional narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also hope that if you do decide to, to adapt an existing narrative, that you feel like you've got a good guidebook there, that you have something to lean on just a little bit, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that will, and I'm, you may laugh about this, but I don't want to release it until I can put doctor behind my name. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't quite do that yet. So the minute I defend, I'm releasing the book. Um, <laughs> But uh, but hopefully later this year, and if not this year, early next, it will come out. Okay, great. And uh, absolutely, I understand that. Although, um, hurry it up, because I'm really yeah. anxious. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I want to mention the other thing, too, is um, I've, I've decided that I'm going to put QR codes in each chapter so that if you click the Q, if you hit the QR code, you go yes. back to the podcast. Uh-huh. So you can listen to all the original stuff, too. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I think that what you said earlier, you know, people do absorb things different ways. And sometimes you do just want to listen or you're, you know, you're in the car and you want to put it on and have it as a background and then, you know, have that that hook in your brain to hang it on like, yes, I read about this. And it's just nice to to hear you kind of talking about it in a more casual way so you can say, "All right, now I understand this overall concept and And I've got this great idea for a story. And so I think that being able to have the the different versions, the the written and, and, you know, the podcast and and all of that together, I think is going to be fantastic. Well, I hope so. You know, (laughs) I hope it helps a lot of people. I hope it I hope a lot of good stories come out of it. Yeah. And and I think that there are a lot of people out there that are, you know, not only writing fiction, they're, they're doing storytelling, and they're, you know, trying to figure out a way to do, maybe it's a personal narrative, maybe it's, you know, a more traditional story. And the, the tools, I think, will help a lot. So where is, for, for now, um, and in the, hopefully in the future, as we go on and, and are able to enjoy your book, how do people find you? 
Well, you can find links to my Patreon and my social media accounts, my music, my writing, and my play on my website at folkloreandfiction.com. And you can also get to it by csmacath.com, which is C-S-M-A-C-C-A-T-H.com. Um, folkloreandfiction.com leads you to the landing page for the Dispatch and Podcast, and csmacath.com leads you to the landing page for the whole site. But it's the same website. It's, it all looks the same. You know, either one is fine. Okay, great. And then all of the all the links are at the top of the the sort of the header. So you, anything you want to find, you can find up there. Okay, great. And if you're um, listening to this on the website, we'll have those links as well. Um, so thank you very much for taking the time. Any last thoughts for people? Um, I again, I know I've said this three or four times, um, especially now. We don't need more capitalistic investment. We need your stories. And when you die, and we all have to, we will lose the opportunity that we have to hear your voice. So while you are alive, pick up your pen and write, sing. It's sacred, I promise. And I want to hear what you've done. That's what I would say. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. In a moment, we'll finish this episode with Kelly's rendition of the song Cruel Johnny so stick around for that. If you're listening to this episode fairly soon after release, you'll have the opportunity to learn more from Kelly and work with her directly in an upcoming Folklore Podcast lecture. On Saturday the 4th of November, online via Zoom and with video replays back for all ticket holders, Kelly will be presenting the workshop Folk Narrative for Writers. Myths Legends, fairy tales and fables are distinct folk narrative types with specific characteristics, but the terms are often conflated in common usage, and the genres themselves are sometimes muddied in contemporary storytelling. Many writers and readers also believe they're inflexible categories of established tales, when in reality they are dynamic tools that we can use to weave familiar narrative patterns into new tales. With this in mind, Kelly presents an introduction to folk narrative and a discussion of its applicability to fiction writing. You'll learn what folklorists mean when we use the term genre to describe narrative types, and you'll learn how we understand myths, legends, fairy tales and fables. And at the end of the webinar, you'll be able to distinguish between these genres yourself, and you'll have a few guiding principles for utilising them in your writing. There'll be plenty of opportunity for a Q&A session with Kelly as part of this lecture as well, and tickets are just £5, which includes the video replay, and they can be booked while places are available from our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com slash lectures. We do hope you can join us there. Don't forget you can support our whole portfolio of work for as little as a pound a month, and get extra content and other benefits on our Patreon page. And without this support, the podcast would literally have to stop production in its current form. So we thank you for anything that you can do to help us. In the next episode of the podcast, I'll be chatting with I.C. Sedgwick of the podcast Fabulous Folklore about rebel characters from cultures around the world. I look forward to your company again then. And now... Here's Kelly singing Cruel Johnny. Cruel Johnny is a variation of Child Ballad No. 10, The Twa Sisters, 
You might have heard it as Gillian Welch and David Rawlings' The Wind and the Rain, Lorena McKennett's The Bonnie Swans, or Old Blind Dog's The Cruel Sister, to name just a few. In her rewriting of the Trois Sisters, Kelly challenges the worldview of the ballad, in which a prospect of marriage was enough reason to overlook the unsavoury courting practices of the prospective groom, who set one sister against the other and threatened the life of the eldest. The finished result, set to a North American melody, tells the traditional story with a very different outcome. Two sisters sang in a shady bower Oh, the wind and the rain A song to pass a happy hour Oh, the dreadful wind and rain One was bright as the morning sun Oh, the wind and the rain Dark as earth
Where two sisters sang of love and power Oh, the dreadful wind and rain And laid the harp upon a stone Oh, the wind and the rain Where it began to play alone Oh, the dreadful wind and rain Two sisters did I come to court